Welcome to UX Radio, the podcast that generates collaborative discussion about information architecture, user experience, and design. Here's your host, Lara Fedoroff. Hey guys, today we're talking with James McAnufo, the co-author of GameStorming and a thought leader in facilitation and interaction design. I recently spoke with him at the IA Summit in Baltimore, and he, we talked about the collaborative design of smart things. Let's pick up the conversation about GameStorming. This is a fun workshop for me uh, because I'm more used to doing training with people on GameStorming. People are really interested in that, how to apply it in their own context, whatever they're doing. And so for me, this is a chance. It's a little self-indulgent because what I've done is taken some of the techniques from GameStorming and actually just applied them to a topic that I'm super interested in. I'm just, I'm really fascinated by the increasingly blurry boundary between sort of the digital and the analog worlds. So as, and I've noticed this in work that I've been doing, experiences aren't just digital anymore, right? We're starting to incorporate things, you could call them smart things into the, into the conversation. And so one of the outcomes of that is the, the experiences are throwing off a lot of data as well. Data about everything from, you know, the simple sort of canonical example is uh, the Nike Fuel platform. You know, so it's a sensor that's in your shoe. It's a whole ecosystem that you experience. It has a social layer to it. It's great. Fitbit's awesome as well. There are plenty of healthcare uh, applications coming online now. So one of the examples I talked about uh, in the workshop is um, this thing called Intelligent M, which is an RFID reader plus an accelerometer that just basically monitors compliance in hospitals. Nurses and doctors wear it, and it can tell when they're washing their hands and how long they're washing their hands. And I don't know if it keeps track of like if they're singing happy birthday two times in a <laughs> row or whatever they're supposed to be doing. So it's, it's just a really... It's a really fascinating thing to me right now. I'm, I have more questions and answers about uh, what it means to designers in this workshop. It's just an opportunity for me to pose some of those questions to people and have them step into the white space and say, well, what does change when suddenly you're collecting all of this data about people? And it is mostly data about people and their behavior. Right. What do you do with it? What do you tell them about what you do with it? What do you not tell them? There's just, there's, there's a, it's a little bit of the, of the wild west when it comes to these kinds of things right, right. now. It's, it's, uh, in some cases, basically the way in the workshop I describe it, it's uh, there's a spectrum between sort of the machines taking over, sort of those the, the creepy moments, you know, Big Brother's watching us at all times and collecting data about our whereabouts and our, our status and things like that, all the way over to, well, actually, there's some really fascinating things that are made possible by this new world of data. Um, you know, it's more the unicorns and rainbows sort of vision of the future where all of our stoplights are precisely timed with traffic and <laughs> we've cured cancer and asthma and things like that. So... So what are we going to do about that? And what are the questions that we need to ask ourselves as, as designers, as people who want to actually bring good into the world? You know, what are we going to do with all this? Right. So. And then you talk about the ethical use of that data. Yeah. And, and so when is it right to tell them, you know, how much you're using and when is it not and what data do you use? Sure. So I think a lot of that's hidden today from the user. And unfortunately, a lot of people agree to what they don't know they're agreeing to, mm -hmm. or they read it and they get freaked out. Right. Well, let me ask you, have you read your iTunes agreement every time they update it, all 47 pages of it? No. Yeah, nobody I, reads it. I have scanned it, I think, the very first time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good for you. That's probably more than most people do. So there's one of the uh, things that we did in the workshop was, it was toward the end, it was redesign that experience, that first page. So when your terms of service has been updated, what would you want that to look like? You know, what information would you want presented to you? What decisions do you have to make? 
um, and collected a bunch of those. I'm going to post them online because I thought oh, they were good. really fascinating. My favorite one was uh, it was it just said, hey, we're going to do whatever we want with your data. We're going to buy it. We're going to sell it. And um, that's just the way it's going to work. Hope you love our product. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then there were there were other clever ideas as well. I should say there's actually people really working on this. Uh, there's a site out there called Terms of Service Did Not Read. Okay. Um, and uh, their premise, I'm going to miss I'm going to mangle it a little bit, which is it's basically that terms of service is the biggest lie on the Internet, that nobody really reads it. We just blindly uh, step into it. And um, they're interested in driving the conversation further as well. You know, what do we need? Do we need nutrition labels for, for data policies? You know, let's, let's just become, first of all, more aware of all of this stuff and the issues in general uh, around it before we start making decisions or, or start reacting poorly. Because like right. I said, it's, there's a spectrum of, of possibility there. Well, it's all legalese, and then it's pages long, so who has the time for that? Sure. I think one other thing that I, I brought up is uh, I have a friend, his name's Cord Davis, uh, and former colleague who wrote a book called The Ethics of Big Data, which, by the way, is the best O'Reilly cover ever. Um, it's, uh, that, it's an image. I'll, I'll send it to you. It's okay. great. Um, and uh, one, of the th one of the points that he makes in the book is that we talk about things like privacy a lot. Privacy is, is most of the conversation around data, and there's certainly a lot of stuff around privacy that we could be concerned with. But he brings up some other points. So for instance, ownership. And this is something we explored in the workshop. Who owns data about you? So say, how tall are you? Five one. You're five foot one. Okay. Who owns that information? <laughs> My doctor. Okay. All right. So some people would say that it's actually just public information. It's just, it's stuff that's out there. You're in a public park. Somebody takes a picture of you and they say this person is five foot one and they were here at this location. That's publicly ownable information. So ownership is is as much an issue as privacy because, um, you know, when we create data, so say you take a picture, right? You feel you feel a certain sort of intuitive sense that you own that thing. When you share it on a social network, then who owns it? Um, and then there are, we believe that there are rights associated with ownership that you can buy and sell it, or that you can do other things with it. It's a very gray area right now in terms of in terms of policy, and, and the law is always going to react to what technology makes possible. So these things are possible now, and we haven't caught up sort of in, in the strict organizational sense around the rules around this stuff. Um, so it's great. We have a chance to kind of decide what that's going to be and, and, and push that conversation forward. I'd love to see more designers talking about these kinds of things. I mean, I identify with the title designer, and a lot of my friends are designers or recovering designers or whatever. And designers want to make stuff. They want to they want to make stuff, or they want to create experiences that are in the world that bring people joy and things like that. So when you add when you bring this up in a conversation, it's just I think in some ways inherently less interesting. <laughs> and I think part of what I was trying to do with the workshop was get people interested in it because increasingly we're in conversations. I mean, the, the classic scenario is it's a whiteboarding meeting and there are technology people there, product management people there, um, you know, architects, designers, that kind of thing. And somebody says, usually the technology guy says, oh, you know what? This is totally possible. We can do this with our data. And uh, if we bring in this other data about people, we can correlate it and put together yada, yada. You know, we can do this. And if you poll the people in the room, two, two of them say, that's a great idea. Let's do it. And one of them says, oh, wait, that's, that's kind of creepy. So creepy is a wall that we need to get past. We need to, we need to find exercises, methods, et cetera, a language to get past that moment so that we can actually, you know, go back to making cool stuff and feeling good about it. Right. Like, how comfortable can you get the user, mm -hmm. and how far can you take it yeah. without kind of going too far? Well, and keeping them appropriately in the loop. 
Right. I'm not sure. Uh, Some of my uh, friends, you know, they're on Facebook, and they're pretty smart people, and they still can't figure out who exactly they're sharing what with. Not to bring Facebook into it. I mean, you know, they... Their mission is to make the world op- more open and more connected, right? So, you know, there's there's hearts and unicorns and rainbows around that. That sounds wonderful. Well, I kind of wanted to go back to the creativity, the mm-hmm. creation of things, and right. bringing that process back to life. Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, one of the other things I'm really excited about right now is uh, just how much more access to tools we have. I mean, if, if you're a designer and you're not interested in uh, getting an Arduino kit and uh, printing something out in a 3D printer and, and as an enclosure and, and just making a thing, then, I don't know, I mean, you're kind of shutting off some interesting stuff. I mean, the, our Lego sets are getting bigger and more fun to play with um, and, and cheaper to access, so um, I brought some of that into the workshop as well. Cool. Yeah, on the front end. So, so we kind of skipped over the intro and get yeah, a little bit cool. of your background. Sure. So why don't you give us a little bit of how you got started in all this? Sure. Uh, well, my first career a long time ago was in infographics. I was an infographics geek and uh, worked briefly at uh, Newsweek with a, a really amazing guy named Carl Good, and just really thought that that was going to be the thing for me. It was just, I'm going to make maps and charts because... They're so powerful. I mean, in terms of media in general, I mean, we're seeing it now. It's very easy to skip the article, you know, or, or it, and, and what I remember was people would carry around the newspaper, but I'm not sure if they read it. They just they just carried it around. And, however, they'd have a different experience with maps and diagrams and things. They It was educational. It was joyful. It was playful. And so that was, that was my first career. Um, and then from there, I went uh, and found what I thought was the best company in the world that did that and, and worked there for seven years. That company was called Explain, which is a verb. They explain things. We, we got to explain a lot of cool stuff. Some of my favorite work was the work we did with the Department of Education, explaining, visualizing what the school of the future would look like. So it was called School 2.0 at the time, uh, and that was back when 2.0 wasn't sort of a gauche term. I don't know what we're on now, what number we're on, <laughs> but it's just it was it was fun work because uh, I think that you know visuals and explanations, especially ones that get past the sort of a lot of the chart junk that you see online now, um, and actually explain things to people and contextualize them, they're they're powerful and they always will be. So from there, kind of wound up doing uh, the consulting part, and that's how I got into collaboration because to make these pictures. You have to get people to agree on what, what's in the picture, right? So you have to get good at collaboration. I think that applies to all of design, really. I agree. Um, you know, but as the complexity increases, you, you need to get good at the, the soft part, which is how to get people to create things together. Right. Uh, and I think that's, that's also something that's, um, that designers need to think about bringing. I mean, you see it in the program here. You know, I mean, a lot of the workshops are on how to do things like that. Sure. So. And what do you think is the biggest challenge in corporations uh, to collaborating? Oh, the biggest challenge? I mean, my my first reaction is that collaboration isn't always the answer. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a mode uh, for certain parts of the process, but uh, sometimes you just got to get things done. I don't default to collaboration is always the best thing, but... I could certainly see more collaborative, uh, more participatory design being done in strategy work because what typically happens in organizations is they all have this story, this four-year, five-year plan. We're going to go on a journey. We're going to pivot. We're going to transform. You know, you go through the list of the Fortune 500, and they're all going through some form of transformation, big, small, whatever. And uh, I just don't know that that story is true anymore because 
what it typically happens is it fails because if they start on high with it, you know, it's coming from an executive retreat or an outside consulting firm, this future vision. I'm getting into your obstacle. I'm sorry. No, <laughs> they, no, they, they come up with a five-year plan. They, they might make some PowerPoints and then it just either sits on a shelf or doesn't go anywhere or gets caught up in just sort of organizational dysfunction doesn't happen. I think that the role that collaboration might play in that is on the front end which is uh, be more participatory about the inputs into that process. So if that's not too jargony, no, I, can I don't think so. Yeah. And I think uh, a lot of times they just say, "Here's what we need, go build it." And they don't stop to ask, "Why are we doing this? What is the purpose? What do we want mm -hmm. to achieve? How do we measure if it's successful mm -hmm. before you even get started?" Mm -hmm. uh, another friend of mine, Dave Gray, wrote a book recently uh, with Thomas Vanderbilt on uh, the connected company. Uh, he lays out a lot of the principles in terms of using uh, what's now available to us in terms of social interactions and things like that to make those transformations possible. So it's a good book. I recommend it. It's a nice color, too. The cover is this nice sort of Tiffany blue. It's, it's really good. So yeah. when you were young, like, did you know this is what you wanted to do? I still don't know if this is what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> I think that everybody should have at least a couple of careers in their lives, a couple of degrees they don't use. So... For me, the next big thing is, uh, the way I explain it to people, is I, I want to learn how to turn some wrenches. Doing more coding, just as a hobby, I've been developing some video games because I think there, there's still so much to be explored in that art form. And so that's, that's the stuff that I'm interested in pursuing right now. And it, it does tie back to the smart things as well. And what's one of the video games that you're working on? <laughs> Uh, the, one, the one that I have a sketch of right now is uh, it's about making choices and things get bigger or smaller. And that's all I can say about that one right now. Uh, okay, so I will do a little self-promotion. My game Double Doppel Enter the Doppelwaffle did very well in China. Oh, nice. It's, it's doing well in China. I don't know why, but basically you control two characters and they move in opposite directions. You have to bring them together. Very fun. I'll have to take a look at that. I can't promise you'll like it, but <laughs> I did. Uh, the sound's really good. I like the sound. Yeah. Thank you for being on UX Radio. Gosh, this was fun. Thanks. <laughs>